Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is caught by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Come on, boy, boy, can you get it up? Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Happy Thanksgiving. You are listening to the best of Sports Business Radio. In segments two and three, we'll look back on my conversation with Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter, executive producer of the blockbuster film Secretariat. If you want to learn about the movie-making business, great conversation, great insight with Mike Rich coming up in segments two and three. In segment four... NCAA President Mark Emmert had him on a few weeks back. Lots of issues that the NCAA is tackling right now. A lot of insight from Mark Emmert. That coming up in segment four. Visit my sports business blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. Here's a message from the person I'm most thankful for. This is Sophia Berger. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Mike Rich. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's written Finding Forrester, The Rookie Radio, and now Secretariat. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Sports Business Radio. Hey, no problem, Brian. Always a pleasure. Let's start by talking about how you got into the business. It's an interesting story. I've heard you tell it before. It was not easy. You wrote the script for Finding Forrester. It was rejected by several Hollywood studios, but you persevered. And maybe tell us that story of how you got into the business. Yeah, it certainly is uh, the path less traveled, that's for sure. Um, You know, because I was working uh, up here at a radio station in Portland, and uh, uh, you know, there was, there was a rule of thumb at the time in Hollywood that it was a young man's game, and I was in my late 30s at the time, and uh, you had to live in L.A., which I didn't. I lived up here in the Portland area and still do. 
so I had I had written this script for Finding Forrester, and while I knew it wasn't a, a perfect script by any means, I knew it was a it was a really strong story, and so. I got some great advice uh, to enter it in a contest, and I entered it in the Nickel Fellowship competition, which the Academy sponsors every year, specifically for writers who've never sold a, a screenplay. And so I entered that uh, script for Finding Forrester back in 1998, and was fortunate enough to be one of the five fellowship-winning scripts that year. And uh, and then within just a few weeks after that, sold the script to Sony Pictures and. A lot of good things happened after that, which, uh, um, you know, you're, you're, you're right when you say that up until that point, I had sent it out to some studio executives and some production companies, but uh, just without any luck. So because it won this award, it had this seal of approval, so to speak. Now people that weren't interested in it before are suddenly interested in it again. Is that how it worked? Yeah, that's how it works. And, and, and the, uh, the irony is that... Um, you know, I still, in, in the scrapbook that I put together of what happened over that year, uh, page one is the rejection letter that I got from Sony Pictures, uh, the same studio executive who bought the script, uh, you know, a few months later. Uh, and it was the same script that she had read that she rejected. She then read a second time after, after the Nickel Fellowship competition and purchased. Generally, how long does it take to write from the original draft of the script from start to finish? You know, for a first draft, Brian, it usually takes me anywhere from four to six months, depending on the level of research. The writing period, though, is actually can be quite short. It can be two to three months for, for a first draft. Most screenplays are, on average, about 120 pages in length. Uh, a minute on the screen is one page in a script. It's the thinking and preparing and brainstorming and researching that a lot of time, a lot of times takes up the uh, the lion's share of the time. The writing can be uh, can be relatively short. We're joined by Mike Rich. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's brought you Finding Forrester, The Rookie, Radio, and now Secretariat. Mike, when you write a screenplay. I imagine now that you're more established, you've got deals with studios. But for people just getting into the business, they're probably writing it and then hoping to sell it to a studio. How does it work for someone like yourself now? Well, it's, it's, it's really difficult to break in, and everybody has their own story. For me, the breakthrough came because of the, uh, the Nickel Fellowship competition, which all of a sudden opened some doors for me. Uh, but, the, but the nice thing now is that uh, if if I have a thought or I have a concept or something comes into my mind that I think might be of interest to a particular studio, I can go in and pitch that idea. Sometimes they go for it, sometimes they don't. But uh, it, 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 it allows me to really pursue a lot more ideas that I might otherwise not be able to do and find out very, very quickly if it's something the studio is interested in. Yeah, your movies tend to be feel-good movies. They have a positive message. We can all take our families to see them. It's also apparent that you like integrating sports into your screenplays. What other characteristics are you looking for when you're, you know, now when you're done with Secretariat and you're going, what's my next project going to be? How do you figure that out? You know, there's no, I don't have a set answer for that, Brian, because it, it, the projects are all kind of different. But the one thing that I think they all do have is really compelling characters. One of the obstacles that I've often been saddled with uh, in some of these projects is people, by and large, know how the film ends. And, and Secretariat's no exception. Most people know that Secretariat won the Triple Crown back in 1973. 
but hopefully and ideally uh, the script has created a, a character in this case Penny Chenery the woman who owns Secretariat who is compelling enough that the audience really just at that point doesn't care that they know how the story ends and in fact at that point it becomes an advantage because they're looking forward to experiencing that moment with the lead character yeah it's interesting um there's never been a movie done on secretariat who most people consider to be the greatest horse of all time why is that and how were you able to convince disney that hey we need to do a movie about secretariat you know it was actually easier to convince disney than it was con to convince penny chenery okay uh, <laughs> and i think that's part of the reason Secretariat won the triple crown back in 1973 and Benny Chattery has been extraordinarily protective of the horse's legacy. He passed away uh, when he was 19 years old and is buried in Kentucky. And, and to this day, people show up every day, total strangers, to put flowers on his grave. That's how much this horse meant to a lot of people back in the early 70s. So Penny Chattery wasn't going to give up those rights too easily. And, and to me, it was one of the great moments uh, in my screenwriting career was getting that phone call that she had agreed to let me take a swing at the script and by that point Disney was excited about it as well so it was Penny Chenery's seal of approval that really got the project moving forward. So I assume you met with her personally to have this conversation and ask for her involvement or her blessing. What happened at that meeting? Yeah it was, uh, it was back she lives in Boulder Colorado now she's in her late 80s and uh uh, it was a fascinating few days uh, in which, you know, we just, the research part of it, to me, Brian, is just always the most rewarding and challenging and, and a lot of things. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, it was just finding out how difficult it was for her on a personal level to pursue this dream of her ailing father uh, at the expense of being with her family, and that was the, that's, that's the balancing act that really drives the uh, story forward in the movie was, you know, her sacrifice in, in the pursuit of really finding out who she was and what, she, uh, what her destiny was in her own life. So were you able to go to her during the project to make sure that everything was as accurate as possible? Sure, and and you know, you you take creative liberties with with every feature film, and this was no exception. You want to keep those to a minimum, and typically, the creative liberties are not so much wholesale changes to fact, because you can't do that. You know, you'll you'll get busted on that. But what you'll do is sometimes you'll consolidate time and and put individuals in places that they may or may not have actually been in to help facilitate the flow of the story. Um, but yeah, it's, let me tell you, when I finished that script, uh, you know, I handed it into the producers, I handed it into Disney, and I handed it into Penny Chenery. And she was the last one to get back to me. And, and I remember the night very well when she did get back to me and, and, and said how much she enjoyed the script and really had very, very few comments, which, uh, which was really gratifying. How old is she now? You know, Penny now, I believe, is 87 or 88. Uh, and she actually has a nice little cameo in the film. What about the setting? Do you go to the actual venues? Are you going to Churchill Downs, or do you go to venues that are a little bit more convenient to get to for the cast and crew? Well, we filmed uh, in two locations uh, for Secretariat. We filmed uh, a good chunk of the film in Louisiana. 
uh, and then we filmed uh, the remainder of the film in Kentucky. You know, the, the stuff that you see in the film at Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby is actually at Churchill Downs. We're joined by Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich. How much say do you have in the casting that goes on? This is an incredible cast in this movie. Diane Lane, John Malkovich. Do you get a little say in, in who gets cast? Yeah, I get a little say. Uh, I'm an executive producer on this film as well, so... You know, my input was valued. Uh, but I have to give all the credit to Randy Wallace, the director of the film. Uh, Randy just did such an exceptional job of bringing this cast together. And uh, it, was, it, was Randy's, um, it was Randy's direction and vision for this uh, cast that, uh, that really made it click. More of my conversation with Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Now back to my conversation with Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich. You talk about every day being an expensive day. I've always wondered this. Can you give me some sort of a ballpark as to how expensive it is to put on a movie like this on a day-to-day basis? Is it tens of thousands of dollars? Are we talking $100,000? What are we talking? You know, the average film, feature release, mid-budget uh, film, probably is $100,000 to $150,000 a day. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's excluding... Uh, a lot of the already contracts for performers, et cetera. That's just the the operation itself and the crew and uh, and getting everything done. So that gives you a, a clear example why it's it's really imperative to make each day uh, each day count. I imagine when you're filming a movie, there's always something unexpected that arises. In any of the movies that you've worked on, do you have a, a funny story for something that might have uh, arisen out of the blue that was unexpected? Well, you know, the, I'll give you a couple of things. The, the the Rookie was an example of a film where we shot all of The Rookie in Austin, Texas. And Austin, Texas usually is just money in the bank for weather. And uh, I, I remember for the first three weeks, we couldn't buy a dry day. Could not buy a dry day. It just poured and uh. poured. And so we used what we call cover sets, and, and, and cover scenes are scenes that, in the event of rain, you shoot these scenes instead of the exterior scenes, and so they're usually almost always interior scenes. And we blew out our, 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 
cover scenes. We shot everything <laughs> that was set. So we didn't. We, we we basically needed the weather to turn. And and the frustrating thing was, I remember, and this was mid spring when we shot this. I kept looking. I was in Austin, Texas, pouring. Kept looking at the forecast in Portland, which was. We went on this two or three week dry streak oh, in Portland, which never uh, happened. Which never happens in the springtime, <laughs> and so the irony was not lost on me that if we had shot it back in uh, in Portland, we would have been in good shape. You know, movies have changed so much. How much attention do you have to pay to, I guess, the post theater aspects of the movie? Well, it's it's a big part of it. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, the theatrical release now is a loss leader for what happens afterwards, and. Uh, and it changes all the time. You know, within just a few years here, we're going to be looking at everything being 1080p resolution on demand, uh, however you, you know, whether it be Comcast, DirecTV, Dish, or whatever. That's how you're going to get uh, your, your films. And so, uh, you know, things, the, the landscape has just changed so dramatically. And yes, uh, a lot of the time that you're on set is... Uh, either doing little vignettes or featurettes or whatever that uh, hopefully can be used as added material once the uh, the home release is issued. Just a few minutes left with Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter. Do you go to screenings? Do you go slip into the theater with your wife? And, and if you do, is that a nerve-wracking process, a proud process? What is that like for you? Yeah, it's both. Uh, and yes, I do. <laughs> it's, um, you know, after you've seen the film a couple, three times with an audience, you, you, you get a feel for what they're going to respond to. And, and uh, it's interesting for the most part, uh, you know, audiences are pretty consistent in how they react. And, and uh, there's always a line that I wrote in the script that I didn't anticipate would get, rea- get a reaction, and it does. And then there's a line that I was sure was going to get a reaction, and it doesn't. Hmm. Uh, and so it's yeah, I, I love it's one of the great benefits of of what I do from from a writing standpoint is I, I really get to see how people react. I get to see it firsthand. It's not so much uh, you know someone coming up to me and saying that they that they really loved you know this this particular scene. I, I can actually go there and, and and watch it happen, which is great. I went to college in Los Angeles, and one of my favorite things to do, the studios would come to our campus all the time at Loyola Marymount, and they'd hand out passes, hey, go make 25 bucks, come watch the screening of this movie. So we'd watch the screening of the movie, then we'd fill out a questionnaire afterwards, and sometimes, in a rare occasion, they'd go back and change the ending of the movie based on the screen test. Does that ever happen in, in movies today, or is that just, you know, that was 20 years ago when I was in college. Now that's the nerve-wracking part of it because it, it does still happen. And what happens is, uh, you know, you have uh, the, the test screening and everybody, the 400 people or so that are in the theater, get a questionnaire and they fill that out. But then they handpick about 20 individuals, and it's 10 men and it's 10 women. And, you know, five of those women are under the age of 25, five of them are over, same with the men, so it's a demographic split. And... Uh, and then they have a moderator who begins a Q&A focus group. And all of the filmmakers sit about five or six rows back, and the golden rule is you can't say anything. That's got to be hard. <laughs> and it's hard because you, you hear responses that, uh, you know, can sometimes lead to a change in a scene that uh, that you felt strongly about. But 
uh, and sometimes they'll they'll defend it. I, I remember uh, with Finding Forrester, there was uh, there were some individuals at the very end of Finding Forrester. They didn't want that story to continue on with the with the epilogue in which we learn of William Forrester's death, uh, and they they felt. That, that it was better to be served uh, just to see the Sean Connery's character kind of riding his bicycle off into the sunset. And it was, they posed that question to the focus group, and I, I, I know as sure as I'm sitting here that if the focus group would have said, no, 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 you're right, we should just stop it right then and there, that that's how it would have ended up. Kind of an off-topic question. There's been so much publicity about the ending of The Sopranos, the ending of Lost, which was one of my favorite TV shows, that they kind of left things to the audience's uh, discretion, to you know our own opinions on how it ended. Do you find that people want an ending that's very concrete to a story, or do they not mind if you leave it open to their interpretation? I think some people do, uh, and... Uh, I I personally love it when you leave it up to the audience to determine in their own mind uh, what happened. Because you know I, I've said before that if I uh, if if I put a movie out and and four people go and see it and they head home that night and they have a conversation afterwards and all four of them disagree on on how they perceived uh, the ending or a key moment, then I've done my job because. Uh, I, I, I love that ambiguity. Uh, too often, I think the, uh, that we do try and, and spoon feed the audience and, and tell them exactly how they should feel or, or what they should, you know, what opinion they should have on a film. And, and I think that's a real mistake. Last question for you. This has obviously been a big project, Secretariat. What's on the horizon for you? What's next? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't have anything definitive right now. Um, there, there are a number of, there, I have a couple of projects at Universal which are in development, uh, hoping they come together. Uh, and, 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 uh, and there's, there's, a, there's an idea of a big kind of sweeping young adult um, uh, story that's been kicking around in my head for some time, and I'm I may use this particular moment to uh, to try and really put that one together, put it before a studio, and, and see if it happens. Mike, I think you're one of the best in the business at what you do. Uh, best of luck with the release of Secretariat on October 8th in theaters nationwide, and uh, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. No problem, Brian. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common. Good coaching. And I want to be your coach. Your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, we'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, We'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. 
With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Emmert is the fifth chief executive in the NCAA's history and the second in succession to come from the ranks of school presidents. Indiana's Miles Brand served six and a half years prior to his death from pancreatic cancer. Emmert was the president at the University of Washington since 2004 and before that served as the chancellor at LSU and Connecticut. Mark, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. So you've been on the job for just a few weeks. Earlier this month, you told the Associated Press the first order of business is to meet everyone in the office, get out there, start listening to the constituents and hearing what their concerns and ideas are. What have you learned so far? Well, first of all, after a couple of weeks, I have had a chance to uh, to get to know all the people of the of the uh, NCA National Office, and and I've been I've been very impressed, Brian, with the quality of the people here their commitment to, uh, to intercollegiate athletics and uh, the work ethic they have. It's just a great place. I couldn't be more pleased with that. Then I've started to, uh, to move around the countryside a little bit and, and talk to some folks and meet with those committees that come in here. Uh, you, you learn firsthand the passion people have for intercollegiate athletics. The, the issues that they're raising with me are pretty much the ones that uh, everyone's familiar with around uh, concern about student-athlete experience and student-athlete well-being, and, and then, of course, issues around, oh, the sustainable, financial sustainability of the enterprise. Uh, there's some anxiety, of course, around some of the conference realignments, all, all the issues that you and your colleagues have been writing about. So it sounds like your management style is more uh, hands-off, get the right people in place, put them in the right positions, and then let them do their job. Is that accurate? Yeah, and, and then make sure that everybody knows what you want to accomplish what the goals and objectives are, and then hold each other mutually accountable. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm joined by Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. He's been on the job for only a few weeks. Mark, over the past few months, things have changed significantly with the NCAA cracking down on improper contact and relationships between agents and student-athletes. We've seen high-profile programs such as USC, North Carolina, Falter. Might we see you expand your enforcement staff in an effort to solve this problem or at least make it better? Well, I haven't made any decisions about uh, expanding staff in that arena, but I'm very pleased with that work that's been going on to try and tackle the the agent issue. It's it's a very good example of of the complexity of some of the challenges that we face, and the only way you can really get at the root causes of those issues is is through collaboration with uh, a variety of folks. The NCAA can't do it alone. We have to have support of, the, of professional sports and the players' associations and of the coaches and of the, the many, many agents who, who are very good actors and for whom this is a very important profession. Uh, and, and then, of course, we have to also hold student-athletes accountable for their behavior. And, and so what we, what we need to do is, uh, to go back to my good friend Scott Woodward's uh, uh, flowery quote, is we do have to focus on the big picture and and take on these issues, but bring other people into the fold and try and get behavioral change to occur. It's not just about enforcement. It's also about education. It's about making sure that we're rewarding the right kind of behavior and punishing the wrong kind of behavior. 
uh, it's going to take a, a systemic approach to really make progress. Well, I totally agree with you on engaging uh, organizations like the NFL Players Association, the NBA Players Association. This quote from Steelers coach Mike Tomlin last Friday to the Pittsburgh Gazette, if we really want to sink some teeth into the situation, we'd have lifetime decertification for agents who offer money or had people who work for them offered money. I would think that a quote like that gets some people's attention and gets people to the table to talk about who are some of these agents that are being certified because I've said on this show for a long time I think it's too easy to be certified as an agent and that's why you see some bad agents out there. Yeah, I think that the the uh, comments like that, the uh, actions of the NCA in recent months, uh, the uh, attention that a number of uh, leading college coaches have given to it, uh, our, our conversations with uh, Commissioner Goodell, for example, in dealing with the football issues, all of that is adding to a sense of seriousness of purpose here that I'm very pleased with. What do you do about getting the compliance officers to feel more comfortable with the people that they're trying to help and vice versa? I, well, as, it, as is always the case at a university, just like any other kind of enterprise, it, it starts at the top. You have to have presidents who are engaged in intercollegiate athletics. They have to understand what this uh, enterprise is all about. They've got to uh, work with their athletic directors and make sure the athletic directors understand uh, what kind of culture and behavior they want to see. And then the ADs have to work with the coaches and the compliance officers to make sure that they've got a positive, constructive working relationship. Uh, there's a lot of really good examples out there of best practices where the compliance officers uh, aren't the, uh, just the cop on the beat, but there's somebody who's working with the coaches all the time saying, all right, what do you want to get done here, and how can we make sure that this, this happens within the, the rules of the NCAA? And when you see that going on, then you've got a program that's going to be run well. And uh, there's many, many good examples of that. We just need more of them. We're joined by Mark Emmert. He's the new president of the NCAA. Mark, the Reggie Bush penalties at USC kind of brought a familiar resolution. Student-athletes left behind pay the price while the perpetrator goes free. The same thing happens with college coaches who, whose programs incur penalties. Then the coach goes to another university to start with a clean slate. Doesn't there have to be a better way? And, and I know you're new on the job, but I would think this is an issue that has also captured your attention. Yeah, of course it is. You, you want to make sure that what you're doing is, is encouraging uh, the right kind of behavior and punishing the wrong kind of behavior. So holding, holding institutions, universities accountable is a, is a good thing in the sense that everyone needs to understand the seriousness of, of these issues. And, and then you start to shape a culture inside a university where, where good behavior goes on. And so I've been very pleased, for example, with what I've seen from the new president and new athletic director at USC. They seem very serious about this, and uh, I think we're going to see a, a really big uh, change of, of uh, culture there, and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, you, you also, though, do need to recognize that uh, we need – uh, some vehicle within which we can we can hold the people accountable who uh, who engage in that behavior. Once they leave college, the college ranks, uh, the NCAA's arms don't reach that far, and so that's where we need cooperation and help from uh, people in professional athletics and in other parts of uh, the sports enterprise. I've got an idea for you. I want to get your, your thoughts on this. So if you're a college coach, you leave a program, the program goes on probation, and you stay within the college ranks. There's nothing you can do about the Pete Carrolls who go to the NFL, at least as far as I know. 
Give them a driver's license like document. If you have a driver's license and you speed or you get a parking ticket or you have any kind of a violation, it goes on your record. If you did this with coaches, then maybe there's some sort of a penalty that they can carry with them from one school to the next. And then it's going to make that school that's hiring them think twice about hiring them, thus penalizing them because they can't just leave the, the problem and go to start with a clean slate. What do you think of that idea? Well, as you know, the NCA does, uh, under certain conditions, um, ask for and, and does receive um, uh, uh, suspensions of coaches from various activities. And so the, uh, the NCA does go after coaches. But, you know, the idea of, of uh, coaches being held accountable for academic performance over, you know, their, their career as well as their compliance with the rules, I think is, is an issue that's well worth talking about. Uh, and uh, and it's the kind of conversation I'd certainly welcome inside the association. Is it time to start paying college athletes? And if if we don't pay them, should there be a different sort of system for athletes with how they're compensated? Uh, no, we absolutely should not uh, pay student athletes because, uh, as the title "student athlete" suggests, they're not employees. You know, they're they're students. They're at the university to participate in their sport, most certainly but also to be a part of that campus and to get an education. Uh, they are supported uh, in everything that they want to do. They're provided with an opportunity to excel in their sport with great coaching and great facilities and a great competitive opportunity. They're provided with uh, remarkable educational opportunities and terrific support for that. Uh, the, the relationship simply has to be one of a student and an institution, not of an employer and an employee. Uh, is there a chance that we should, or uh, an opportunity for us to think about the size of their financial aid package, their grant and aid, to make sure that we are covering the full cost of attendance? Well, sure, that might be something worth, worthy of discussion. Uh, but the reality is that uh, that we should not uh, should not in any fashion be paying uh, students to to be uh, members of teams. There's a huge a huge misperception about what goes on with the money that comes into intercollegiate athletics. You know, very, very few, uh, somewhere around 20 or fewer universities at any given year uh, have uh, enough revenue to cover all of the costs of their athletic programs. Uh, the the $10.8 billion contract that the NCAA signed is, of course, over 14 years. Uh, and m when you look at the money that flows back to those universities and supports the championships for the student-athletes, uh, more than 95% uh, of all the resources flow back out to the institutions, and the NCA just passes that money through in, in cash and in services back to the institutions. But, you know, people see those kind of numbers and think that there's some big cash cow here, and that's just not the case. I, I promise you, Tim Tebow, for all of his wonderful talents, did not build the library at the University of Florida. You know, you hit it on the head. I think that's one of your biggest challenges, and it's been a challenge of the NCAA for a long time. When the common person sees, oh, the NCAA signed a 14-year, $10.8 billion TV deal, they go, wow, that's not amateur athletics. That's big business. But you guys are trying to tell us that, hey, this money is being filtered back into the schools. And I think people forget, I, I talked to Dr. Brand about this, that this is paying for golf, this is paying for lacrosse, this is paying for soccer and the other non-revenue generating sports. And that's, that's a lot of money to run all of those sports as well. Everybody thinks that uh, college sports are a huge cash cow for universities and in all but a few exceptions, they, they actually require infusions of cash. 
And so the, the real question for university presidents is more on the sustainability of the enterprise, not how do we milk this thing for money. It's, it's ironic that uh, presidents are worrying about exactly the opposite of what the, uh, the, the sports viewing public is worried about. You know, if you look at, uh, it's been well publicized now, University of California, Berkeley, uh, they had something like a 10 to $15 million annual shortfall in their athletic budget. So they're eliminating four or five sports right now and trying to figure out how do I deal with this big shortfall. Well, here's a famous program playing in the Pac-10, uh, participates in, in uh, all of the TV revenue, and, and yet the cost of the programs uh, still draws from the rest of the university, not the other way around. Well, and maybe that's why you have commissioners like Pac-10 Commissioner Larry Scott out there trying to form super conferences so they can go out and make an even bigger media deal, TV deal, so there's more money and programs like that don't have to be cut, right? Yeah, I mean, part of the uh, conference alignment structure and a variety of other things is at least in part about about money. There's no doubt about that, and and every conference wants to position themselves as effectively as they can. I think people also overestimate the uh, the, the role of money in all of those decisions because having sat in those conversations in several different conferences, uh, the universities also worry about who are their peers, who's in their who's in their. Uh, uh, intellectual and academic peer group. Uh, they they want to be associated with the right schools. And so if you look at a, uh, any of the moves that have occurred recently, a, a significant part of that was schools saying, we want to be affiliated with those, with those other universities for academic as well as athletic reasons. We've got just a few minutes left with Mark Emmert. He is the new president of the NCAA. Mark, there's a new book out. It's called Death to the BCS. The book questions many things about the current system in Division I college football, but one of the main questions for many is why the NCAA would outsource its most profitable product, postseason football. There's no other sports entity that contracts out its postseason. Seemingly, you're leaving a lot of money on the table in a day and age when, like we just talked, programs are having to cut sports. Why doesn't the NCAA organize postseason football like it does with NCAA men's and women's basketball and even in other divisions of college football? The decisions about the postseason and football are made at the local institutional level. Individual presidents and the conferences uh, have decided long ago that they wanted to play through the, uh, through the bowl system. You know, we've never had a championship in Division I football. The NCAA hasn't had a, um, you know, the same relationship with football as it has with other sports for 20 or 30 years. And so every year we come up to this time of the season and we start looking at the BCS rankings and everybody gets anxious about it. Uh, there's a couple of good things that happen. One is we're all talking about college football. That's not, that's not inherently bad. Right. Uh, and, and secondly, you know, it, it provides a lot of attention to who's winning and who's not around the, uh, around the conferences, and I think that's good. Our position, my position at the NCAA, is that this is going to be a decision that presidents are going to have to make. The decisions to work through those bowl games weren't the NCAAs. That was something that was established by individual universities and conferences long ago. Why doesn't the NCAA just do the same thing for, for football? Is it because your staff isn't big enough, so you need to contract it out? You have to remember that the NCAA is a volunteer association, and so our members, the presidents that run those sports, are the ones who actually make that decision. So. When you, when you say the NCAA, of course, you mean all of the universities and colleges that are the members of it. And, and so far, the presidents of Division I have decided they prefer the current bowl system to other structures. All right. Give us a glimpse of the human side 
of Mark Emmert. When you're not on the job, when you're out with your family, what do you like to do? Oh, I, I like to do most anything uh, outdoorsy. I, I love to fly fish and uh, spend time uh, on a golf course once in a while. I'm also a uh, sports car nut. I have an old Triumph TR6 <laughs> that I enjoy spending time fiddling with and laying underneath and uh, trying to keep alive and well. And then, of course, you won't be surprised to learn I love intercollegiate sports. Yeah, I mean, you've always been on a college campus. Now you're not. Do you kind of miss that? Well, not yet. I'm sure there'll be a few days when I when I uh, just have to see college students. And fortunately, the uh, the NCAA offices, as you know, uh, abut uh, a campus, so I can just stroll a few hundred yards and see college kids when I want to. When you walk out of the doors of the NCAA offices one day for good, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, first of all, you know, the, the academic reform movement, I hope, is, we, I hope we stop talking about it as reform, and I, thought we, I hope we start talking about it as simply the, the embedded culture of, of student-athletes, that we have complete and utter expectation of high academic performance. It's not something new, but it's, in fact, something that's just a continuation of all the things that we do. I hope that we have a set of rules and behaviors in place that uh, make sure that our student athletes are having very, very high quality experiences on their on their campuses and in their competitive life. That uh, they are able to take full advantage of everything that a university has to offer. Uh, that, that's what I want. I want more and more students to be able to walk away from intercollegiate athletics, having been able to develop their mind and their body the way that uh, we all uh, want them to do. Well, and I guess on that note, something that we always seem to forget. These are young people. These are not professional athletes. These are not 40-year-old you know, mothers and fathers. These, these are young people, and I think because they've become so good at what they do and because they're so well-spoken that a lot of times we forget they're young people, right? Absolutely. These are kids that are growing up, and, and they, uh, you know, as, the, as our ads say, there's 400,000 of them, almost all of whom will go professional in something other than sports. You know, that's exactly right. You know, for them, sports is not a job. This is their avocation. They do it because they love it. They, they uh, yeah, of course a number of them would love to go play professional basketball or football, but the vast majority of them uh, don't have those intentions. This is just part of what they do as they grow up and develop. And, uh, and, and frankly, it's a great thrill for all of us to get to watch that occur. And it's, it's too easy to forget when you're watching somebody in football pads or you're seeing somebody do some physical act that uh, is, is just amazing that you're dealing with, you're talking about and watching and dealing with 18 to 21-year-old kids, and uh, that's the business we're in. We're in the education and development business. Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA. Mark, I've enjoyed this conversation, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. I hope we can catch up again soon. I'm sure we can. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? 
you develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Well, I hope you enjoyed a look back at my conversation with Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich and with NCAA president Mark Emmert. You can find those on demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. I want to encourage everyone to submit their top sports business stories of the year to me at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Griggs and I are going to be unveiling our top 20 sports business stories of the year, stories 20 through 11 on our Christmas Day show on December 25th, and then stories 10 through 1 on our January 1st, 2011 show. So if you've got nominations for your top sports business stories of the year, Brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. I want to thank our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, Kalkoff Bikes, and New School Media Coaching, a podcast reminder. You can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page, look for the iTunes icon on our homepage. You can subscribe for free. To our iTunes podcast. I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. I hope you and your family had a wonderful Thanksgiving. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.